this is Dr. Bruce Davidson sitting in for our usual podcast uh, host, Dr. Kyle Hogarth of the University of Chicago. And uh, today I have a good fortune to be talking with uh, Dr. Anand. Uh, he is medical director and uh, professor. Uh, he works at uh, the uh, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and uh, he's at the Medical College of uh, Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And uh, also joining us is uh, Dr. David Garcia, who's professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology at the University of Washington. And our subject today is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Uh, and the specific focus of Dr. Nan's article in September chest and an editorial about it uh, is uh, making the diagnosis, the confirmed diagnosis of HIT easier. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, more than that because it's, uh, it remains a considerable uh, problem uh, and worth discussing. So uh, let me begin with, so welcome uh, Dr. Nand, uh, or Nand and David. To both of you, Thank you. thanks uh, for joining Thank us. Thank you. Um, so let me ask, uh, let me start with uh, Anand. Why is this a controversy? Why is there a controversy about this diagnostic test? So um, HIT, although has been recognized for many, many years, um, is still relatively common uh, based on our, our estimates, uh, likely about twenty, twenty-five thousand people uh, in the U.S. Uh, develop HIT every year, and uh, several fold more are suspected of this uh, disorder. Um, the real problem is that commonly used tests for HIT diagnosis, such as the PF4 heparin ELISA uh, or several variants of that, are nonspecific for the diagnosis of HIT, and by that I mean uh, a positive result in that uh, assay does not necessarily mean that the patient has HIT. Uh, in fact, uh, this is a significant problem, and um, the American Society of Hematology, as part of its uh, medical stewardship campaign called the Choosing Wisely campaign, selected uh, HIT immunoassays as one of five tests and treatments to question in all of hematology. Uh, these tests are easy to run and they're commonly used, but uh, as, as uh, I alluded to, um, it's hard to rely on, on the results you get from them. Uh, the result of these, uh, uh, the use of these tests is that when you have a patient suspected of HIT who may have some but not all of the characteristic findings uh, that you would expect to see in HIT, you sometimes rely on the results of the assay to make a diagnosis. Uh, the diagnosis of disease uh, is, is, is thought to include both a clinical component and a lab component. The clinical component has been well studied for years, and the laboratory component is usually contributed uh, by the results of the HIT ELISA. And so making a diagnosis based on the ELISA that's readily available can lead to overdiagnosis of this disorder, uh, resulting potentially in overuse of alternative anticoagulants in patients who would otherwise uh, um, not be at risk with continued uh, heparin use. Uh, and I might also add that uh, the economic costs of uh, uh, alternative anticoagulant use is, is high as well. Uh, 
Uh, and so for those reasons, I, I think that there is uh, a need for uh, an easy-to-run uh, near-patient assay that provides uh, an accurate readout uh, of hit diagnosis. Okay, Dave, any, uh, anything to add? Or would you concur? I certainly concur with everything in onset, although I would, it's interesting that as a clinician, I would um, frame the burden of HIT a little differently. I'm sure that Anand, as, as somebody who works at a reference lab and receives many, many samples uh, of, of uh, serum or plasma from patients with suspected HIT, um, he sees the burden of disease as large, which it which it is in a sense. But as our critical care physician listeners uh, certainly know, uh, the number of confirmed cases of HIT or HIT is only a fraction of the number of suspected cases, since there are obviously many reasons that critically ill and hospitalized patients develop thrombocytopenia other than HIT, and it's that low prevalence of true disease in a sea of uh, other multifactorial reasons for low platelet counts that make this uh, uh, such a challenge, when, especially when you combine it with the fact that there really is no absolute gold standard objective test for uh, HIT. Okay. Well, well Dave, then if... Uh... If you're called in consultation about someone on the floor in the ICU uh, because people are concerned about HIT, uh, not just thrombocytopenia, but maybe maybe some other signs uh, or history as well, um, take us through uh, what you do. Sure. So uh, the first thing I do uh, in practice is to determine a pretest probability of HIT. Unfortunately, there's a pretty validated score or way to do that. Um, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with something called the 4Ts score. Um, and it's a clinical prediction rule that looks at four different elements, which we can talk about if, if Bruce, you think that would be useful. But basically, it allows the clinician to, in a relatively reproducible way, determine a pretest probability that the patient has HIT before you draw any blood or start any empiric therapy. If that pretest probability is low, then guidelines would suggest, and in my practice I follow those guidelines, to, to, to avoid performing testing and in, instead look for other causes of thrombocytopenia and strongly consider continuation of heparin. On the other hand, if if the pretest probability based on you know a fairly good validated clinical prediction score like the 4T score is is not low, that is it's intermediate or high, then I send uh, the screening test that Anon was referring to a moment ago, which is an immunoassay uh, looking for anti-heparin PF4 antibodies. Okay, so that's Nalisa, and and uh, and what else do you do under that set of circumstances if the pretest probability, the score, is worrisome enough? Do you uh, 
you well, stop as, heparin or low molecular weight yeah. heparin, start another drug? What do you start to, to take yep. us through that? Yeah, so it's important to, to not only discontinue the suspected culprit, whether it's heparin or low molecular weight heparin, but to also initiate an alternative anticoagulant empirically while you're waiting for the test results. And at our institution, we use either bivalirudin, a direct thrombin inhibitor, if we need something with a very short half-life, or if, if half-life is not a concern and the patient has good renal function, uh, we would use fondaparinox an indirect inhibitor of activated factor 10 that's given subcutaneously. Uh, other, other people would use argatroban, which is another small molecule direct thrombin inhibitor. And, and bivalirudin and fondaparinux, how do you decide to dose them? Is bivalirudin given the same way it is in the cath lab and fondaparinux with the treatment dosages or... Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, um, I would if if I'm suspicious enough that I'm stopping heparin and doing or ordering expensive lab tests, I'm generally going to give treatment doses. Um, to be honest with you, Bruce, I don't know the bivalley rudin doses, yep. doses off the top of my head because they're you know they're driven by a protocol that our that our pharmacy directs and. But, but, I mean, is it the same dosage that they would use in the cath lab for anticoagulation or... or yeah, I mean, it's, it's therapeutic-level yeah. Yeah, therapeutic yeah. anticoagulation, yeah. And, yep. and, uh, and then tell me about uh, transferring the patient to, a, uh, to warfarin, let's say. Do you do a... If the patient can take orally... Uh, and has yeah. a gut that's going to be reasonably reliable? Do you do a prompt five- to seven-day transition? Um, yeah. Not so, that you necessarily turn... turn but, but go ahead. Yeah, so I think that um, ideally, you know, one of, the, one of the things about HIT is that most patients, of course there's exceptions to every rule in medicine, but most patients with true HIT will have a fairly definitive increase in the platelet count pretty soon after the heparin exposure has been eliminated. I'm, and I'm talking about within a day or two. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, if that occurs and if the laboratory testing confirms HIT, and we'll, we'll get a little more into what we mean by that, um, I guess, later, mm -hmm. then um, I would certainly continue the bivalirudin or Fonda or whatever parenteral agent until the platelet count were normal or very close to normal, uh, at which time we would start uh, warfarin. It's important not to start warfarin too early because, and, and it's generally recommended that one avoid sort of loading doses of warfarin because warfarin, remember, can cause a precipitous drop in protein C or S, since they're also vitamin K-dependent proteins, and um, that, that can paradoxically make a patient even more hypercoagulable than they already are in this very prothrombotic state. Okay, and so <clears throat> I, was, I was going through, uh, have it, asking you to go through that uh, for a reason, and that is given that... Uh, 
that we have substitute drugs to use and lung, one's IV, one's sub-Q, but, but we can transition to oral therapy, and I believe there is pretty soon to be completed or completed a study of one of the new oral direct-acting anticoagulants, rivaraxaban, in uh, HIT. Um, why isn't the current state good enough? Uh, uncertainty, uh, switching off heparin and or low molecular weight heparin. Uh, so, so let me ask uh, uh, both uh, Anand and David. Uh, if, if Anand, you concur with what Dave described as a as an approach to take to patients, um, why isn't that good enough? Um, so this is Anand. So I, I fully agree with uh, with what David has said. Um, uh, again, the, the doses of heparin are given in the millions, and you have a small um, uh, sort of disease load. So you have a lot of patients you sort of suspect of hit, some more than others, uh, and you're sort of... Uh, you know, withholding the heparin, putting in an alternate anticoagulation, sending uh, an easy-to-obtain test in your hospital lab. But I think the problem occurs when the clinical picture is not quite as clear and you get a, a, result, resulted, uh, a result reported as, as positive from the ELISA. So maybe I'll defer to David at that point as to what uh, he typically does or he recommends uh, doing. Well, Dave, right, so the, you, uh, yeah, go ahead. Why, yeah. why isn't what you just went through good enough? I mean, Anand says there's so many patients with heparin, it's often ambiguous, and you have to put them through this transition. Would you, do you buy that, or would you add to that? Well, we, yeah, the, where, where we have a problem currently is not when the ELISA is negative, because most hospitals are using an ELISA assay for which, the cut point has been set to make it extremely sensitive, meaning that a negative test essentially excludes HIT. So that's not the issue. Um, and on the, at the other extreme of things, I would say if a patient ultimately turns out to have HIT, uh, the lab tests are line up and match closely with the clinical suspicion and it's, there's no controversy, that's not the problem. But the problem lies in the sort of the broad middle, which is patients who have a, a very equivocal result on the ELISA, that is, it's called positive by the lab, but its degree of positivity is not strong, and maybe where the clinical pretest suspicion was also borderline medium. Um, that, that now we're exposing a patient who probably is not going to turn out to have HIT to anticoagulants in the setting of thrombocytopenia that's presumably caused by something else. And to, and to anticoagulants, particularly in the case of bivalirudin or agatroban, that we don't typically use in other settings, so our, our nurses and doctors have limited experience with them. And we're waiting for confirmatory testing, which in the state of the art is a serotonin release assay that's performed at only a small handful of institutions in the United States and Canada because it's a technically demanding assay and a nons institution happens to be one of those that gets send outs for this so-called SRA uh, from all over the country. 
Okay, so so you both highlighted that uh, it's anything but a trivial problem, really, for the bulk of patients who fall in the middle. So, Anand, uh, tell us, take us then, take uh, five minutes or a little more uh, to take us through your report and what you did to improve the current state of the art for diagnostic testing. Yeah, sure. Um, so as, as David mentioned, uh, you know, the long turnaround times, et cetera, uh, to obtain the, you know, the current gold standard uh, told me that there is a, a perceived at least a need for uh, an easier-to-run assay that would be, uh, you know, technically simple uh, yet uh, accurate in its readout. So sort of simple, hopefully, like the ELISA or similar but with a readout similar to the SRA. So our aim really going into the study was to show uh, that uh, the new assay that we were developing was at least as good as the SRA, which is uh, considered sort of the de facto gold standard assay. Um, and, uh, and we recently uh, published that um, in, in blood in early 2015 that hit antibodies can bind to platelet factor 4 complex with endogenous platelet glycosaminoglycans and, um, and result in platelet activation. And the assay that we developed, we call the PEA, which is abbreviated for PF4-dependent P-selectin expression assay, uh, is an assay that builds on that finding. Um, it's a simple assay where you obtain normal donor platelets, so these are normal volunteers donating um, blood from whom platelets are, are isolated and washed. Uh, we add a small amount of platelet factor four, which is uh, a protein in the alpha granular platelets, uh, and then this is followed by incubation of that mix with uh, patient serum. Uh, the, uh, and then we look at a marker of platelet activation. This is, uh, is a protein called P-selectin on the platelet surface. And the way we did this for this study, we used a benchtop flow cytometer. Uh, it's really small, tiny machine called the Acury C6, uh, which is found in numerous labs um, and institutions. The total time duration of the test uh, was about two to three hours, which was uh, roughly half the time that it takes uh, for the SRA. So in this study, we, we chose uh, about 100 samples, actually exactly 91 samples uh, from patients suspected of HIT uh, on whom we had uh, extensive clinical histories, and uh, the four T-scores were adjudicated by two physician investigators at the Blood Center Wisconsin, um, and, and these are samples uh, that are both recent and that were obtained several years ago and stored in our freezer. Um, in order to evaluate the, um, the performance characteristics of the PEA and the SRA, we had to first uh, define uh, which samples came from patients with disease uh, and which were from patients without. Uh, and based on you know, chest reviewer comments and uh, a lot of internal discussion, uh, we decided to uh, assign a fairly stringent definition of uh, HIT we called anyone with a high 4T score and uh, an ELISA optical density of greater than 1.0 as disease positive, or if a patient had an intermediate 4T score 
and an ELISA OD greater than 2. Now, all other patients, including low 4T scored patients, were considered uh, hit negative. And then uh, the, the samples were run in the PEA, the SRA, and the ELISA, um, the commonly used IgG, ELISA. Uh, and uh, we performed a test, a statistical test called the Receiver Operating Curve, or ROC test, which is a commonly used test to validate new assays. Uh, we obtain a readout called the area under the curve, which is a surrogate for test accuracy. And really, we went into the, the study wanting to show equivalence of the PEA to the SRA, and we were uh, a little bit surprised because the AUC was greater for the PEA than it was the SRA, and, and this, this difference was uh, statistically different. Now, we analyzed... Um, the data different ways as well. We said, how about if we use a little less stringent definition of hit positivity by using an OD of one instead of two, for example, for intermediates and high 4T scores, and the results really were no different. If we excluded ELISA results altogether and considered only those that had five uh, that had high 4T scored us as a hit positive, we still saw a difference. And so um, the, we, we did some additional testing which suggest, uh, suggested analysis and testing which suggested that the, the enhanced accuracy could partially be uh, accounted for by the significantly higher sensitivity of the PEA compared to the SRA. Um, while the specificities of the two tests were, were quite similar. All right, let me just back up two technical questions uh, for doctors who might want to talk to their lab directors about this. Is the PF4 that, so, so in terms of practically setting up the lab, setting up the assay, uh, I assume uh, hospital labs can get normal platelets. Is the PF4 that you add, in, in, uh, is that commercially available? And second, is a... Uh, is a color-tagged P-selectin antibody that you add as the indicator, is that commercially available? So the um, so I guess the short answer is yes, uh, local labs or hospital labs could offer the PEA um, under the frameworkers of, uh, framework of what the FDA would call a lab-developed test or an, or an LDT. The reagents... Uh, uh, that were used in the PEA, uh, the PF4, uh, uh, labeled P-selectin antibody, and um, a labeled antibody to mark platelets are all commercially available. However, in order to uh, develop a lab-developed test, uh, one has to perform all of the requisite uh, validations, et cetera. Uh, one additional thing I'll have to mention is that my employer, the Blood Center Wisconsin, has um, a patent uh, filed and pending, so I would imagine it would need some sort of commercial license uh, from, uh, from the Blood Center Wisconsin. Um, I should note that you know uh, we are in the process. Uh, when I when I say we, the diagnostic are a lab arm at the Blood Center Wisconsin is in the process of testing and validating uh, the PEA in their hands to offer as a lab developed test. Uh, while the date for offering this is is not set, I, I do expect that in the in in the not too distant future. 
Um, at the current time, it is uh, a research-only test that's performed by my lab. But, but really, I, I think that the full benefit of the PEA uh, would would be realized if there's a PEA test kit that's marketed so that you know hospitals, small and large, could could run the assay themselves um, near where the patients are without having to ship it out to Milwaukee or other locations of, uh, mm-hmm. of other reference labs. And I know, I mean, well, right now there is no kit available, but I, mm-hmm. I do know that uh, my employer is evaluating this uh, aspect of uh, test commercialization. So, Dave, you've read Anand's uh, early article and uh, listened to him. Uh, Ted Workington had, uh, in his editorial, also in jest about the article, had uh, some criticism. Uh, do you have any criticisms of, uh, of what Anand's presented? Well, I guess my concern is that it, I mean, I think Anand's work is really spectacular and i and i commend him for trying to move the ball down the field uh, in this difficult diagnostic dilemma but the but the challenge that anand or any investigator who's who's trying to improve upon things has is what the heck do you you if if you develop an assay as anand has how do you really what do you hold it up against given that there's not a single test, which is a standalone gold standard. The SRA has been put forward as a gold standard, but Anand's data points out that um, may, perhaps it's not. I mean, perhaps Anand, Anand's assay, the PEA, is picking up cases and calling them hit positive where the SRA would have called them hit negative. Now, does that mean those patients, you know, if, if they had just been in current standard clinical care and had a negative SRA and had heparin resumed, would have gone on to develop catastrophic thrombosis and, you know, the SRA would have, would have missed the boat? Or is the PEA overcalling the significance of of an antibody that maybe is is increasing p selectin expression uh, but but is really not clinically important and and I think teasing out the answer to that is going to be very difficult but it but it's there's certainly thought provoking results you know this is not so uncommon in medicine years ago when <clears throat> when uh, anticoagulants new ones were being developed. Uh, for to prevent post-operative uh, deep vein thrombosis, and ultrasound was finding clots that venograms didn't see. Uh, the ultrasound uh, specialist said, um, "You know, your venograms don't always uh, totally fill all the veins." Uh, when CT pulmonary angiography found clots that that uh, in segments that appeared normal by lung scan, the same issue uh, arose. Uh, and, and then if, if the standard pulmonary arteriograms were ambiguous or not done. So uh, it, you, I suppose, uh, Nan, you your PEA test could be too sensitive. You, you did uh, test it in people with confirmed adjudicated disease, 
Did uh, did you also have normal volunteers in your study? And did you do you think you have set the the issue of false positives to rest entirely? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I worried a lot about it during the test development. So in the in the chest paper, uh, of the 91 patients, uh, 65 were uh, categorized as disease negative. Uh, a subset of them had, you know, low ELISA positives, uh, uh, you know, below the one uh, that we, we set as the definition. Uh, and in others, it was, you know, dead negative. So there was a fair number of patients who were actually ELISA negative, and based on the testing on that cohort, the specificity of the PEA uh, was 85% and similar to 92%. But certainly, you know, this is a highly selected sample set. There's, there's uh, uh, definitely significant uh, limitations in that these were not uh, consecutive samples, for example, and there may have been unintended selection biases uh, for sample selection. So we actually, we are right now um, in the process of, um, uh, we actually have a, a prospective study underway um, in collaboration with, uh, with David and his, uh, and his institution where uh, we are really blinded to uh, the identities and the scores of the samples uh, from patients that he sees and uh, he is blinded at the time of scoring to results of serologic testing that, that we may obtain. So I think a larger prospective study is, is going to be very, very important. But based on this preliminary results in, in our chest paper, it appears that despite the significant enhancement of sensitivity, there appears to be uh, no trade-off uh, for specificity. Now, it's, this is truly speculative, but um, each platelet has about um, five to eight dense granules, and, and, and as you may know, serotonin is in dense granules, uh, while uh, the same platelet has about 10 times more, uh, about 50 to 80 uh, alpha granules, which houses the, uh, the P-selectin protein. So it's possible that in some settings, um, antibodies uh, that are not quite as strong, um, you know, engage the FCGMR2 receptor, uh, uh, maybe somewhat lesser, and result in some activation that is not picked up by the SRA, but is by the PEA that, that is still, you know, clinically significant. So that's something that, that is somewhat speculative, but um, that's something that I have been uh, thinking about a little bit um, as far as why uh, one assay, the PEA, may be uh, more sensitive than the SRA. But I, I think that a prospective study is going to be very, very important, and I think it will probably be a year or two before we, we wrap that up and, and know what the results uh, suggest. Well, that's can an I, interesting. Can I, can, yeah, sure, Dave. Can, can I just ask, Anand, a, a follow-up? Uh, Anand, if, you, if, if the PEA, let's say, fulfilled your wildest dreams about performance, um, you know, the most optimistic scenario, would you envision it as not only replacing potentially the SRA, but, but also the ELISA, or do you think it would be best used kind of the way the SRA is used as a confirmatory test only for patients with a positive ELISA? 
So, so my my really my dream is that uh, we will have a kit for the PEA, and that large hospitals that are proficient and used to drawing donor platelets for tests such as platelet aggregometry will use this as the assay, possibly even replacing the ELISA. While at smaller hospitals, you know, they'll resort uh, first to the ELISA test, and if it's, you know, low positive or something like that, then they would then send it out to uh, a larger hospital or a lab in the same city or same area for the PEA. And the um, reason I, but the reason I ask that, Anand, is that in that case, I mean, 90% specificity sounds pretty good, but what i mean turned around that means that the pea is identifying 10 out of every 100 patients with a negative elisa as being positive for hit correct and, oh, and this that sounds is, like a high number to me so this relates to uh, diagnostic specificity uh, as defined by uh, the study um, and so some of those cases that were called positive were actually ELISA positive. They just didn't meet the threshold of the definition. They may, they may be in 0.9 OD and high 4T score that would have actually been scored as, as hit negative. I, I so see. if you look at the, and if you look at the SRA positivity, uh, SRA specificity rates rather that we reported in the paper, that's at 92% as well. So uh, both of them appear similar in this in this study yeah. uh, we'll have to see what the larger prospective study has to say but one I think one question I, I may have forgotten to address earlier is we this is not published data but we took about 65 uh, just normal volunteers and just uh, ran them in uh, the PEA just to see does this pick up people uh, um, you know who don't have disease is disease positive and and none of the 65 were were positive this is uh, some data for uh, an upcoming publication that I'm that I'm generating, and uh, and so we we think that this does uh, detect folks that uh, are hit disease positive, possibly some that are not, because in 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 the study that was published uh, that is being published in Chest, uh, there were a total of 16 PEA positive, SRA negative uh, uh, patients. Of those 16, 11 were defined as disease positive based on those stringent criteria that we, we came up with. Uh, however, five were disease negative. So it does appear to pick up uh, some folks that may not have disease or may possibly have, you know, milder disease or other complicating factors. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not, uh, I, I don't think any test is ideal. Uh, and initial indications are that this uh, performs well, but we'll have to, we'll need to do this larger prospective study to confirm that. And, and the point about passing through two tests, the ELISA first, to, to get a more high probability population may be uh, may be useful and important for yeah. the test. But yeah. let me uh, ask you, Anand. Uh, Dave mentioned, uh, you know, how this moves the ball down the field. Um, let me ask you first, and then Dave to comment on how we can get new tests implemented. There are a lot of good ideas in medicine that just take forever to get implemented. The, the INR was one of them. There, were, there was plenty of evidence that uh, 
the PT could be improved upon, first with a PT ratio and then ultimately uh, with the INR, which happened around the world much quicker than it happened in the United States. Um, based on your view of the, or both of your views of laboratory medicine and this field, do you think uh, if this stands up in subsequent testing, it would be a relatively easy sell to make the PEA regionally available and uh, no longer require the SRA, or do you see it as daunting? Um, I don't know. Do you want to go, David, first, or uh, I'll take well, Anand, it's your your essay, your laboratory guy. What do you What do you? Oh, think? okay. So, um, I I I mean, our lab, our diagnostic lab, it's called the Platelet and Neutrophil Immunology Lab, is uh, is taking this very very seriously, and they're they're putting in uh, resources and time to to test it. Um, and so I, I do believe that uh, in the not-too-distant future, this is going to be offered as a clinical test. Now, uh, although my, my dream and my vision is that this be in the form of a kit that is just easy to use, now that will require uh, a process um, that's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a process called the 510K approval process for, you know, devices and diagnostic uh, sure. equipment and so on. Uh, and that's something that uh, we are thinking actively about as well. So um, that does take time. It requires an FDA-approved clinical trial or diagnostic trial in this case uh, in order for it to get approved. But uh, we are uh, actively thinking about those things now. I don't have, unfortunately, a timeline or, or, or to give you, but I think it would be a few years. But um, what I can tell you is I am, I'm reasonably confident that the diagnostic lab will offer this as a um, as a lab-developed test. Now, it, it may not help people like David, um, who currently have to wait uh, a certain number of days for the SRA to get done. It's not going to cut down on the wait time uh, for the PEA. But I'm hoping that multiple large labs around the country would be able to develop this as an LDT until such time that uh, a kit is available. Dave, do you see this uh, as having enough weight to... Uh change practice and move from these very limited SRA availabilities to, to this? Well, you, you know, I think, it, Bruce, if we could establish, and this is a big if, that the PEA is at least as good as the SRA, um, and, and in particular, I guess, that it really had comparable sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and, and that's going to be tricky given the lack of a true gold standard. But, but if we could establish that, be, and, and if it could be available more locally or, or regionally, then I think uh, it's going to get a lot of attention, a lot of consideration. I think ultimately, again, if we talk about sort of what would we dream of uh, as a clinician, I would dream of not just that, but then a subsequent management study in which you could somehow show favorable outcomes in patients who had their decisions to continue or discontinue heparin or other anticoagulants driven completely by the PEA results, because ultimately that's 
what we clinicians have to do is stand at the bedside and say, yeah, this guy has hit or no, he doesn't, and, and I'm, I'm going to do X, Y, Z with his anticoagulation based on that. And so um, that, that obviously takes the burden of investigation to an even greater level and, and draws things out longer. I'm not sure that sort of management study is going to be absolutely necessary for, for something like this to get adopted, but at a minimum, it's going to have to be proved, it's going to have to prove to be as good as the SRA. I, I think, uh, so I agree with you. I think it's nonetheless remarkable uh, and a terrific, uh, thus far, persuasive piece of work on the diagnostic testing, you know, semi-small number level. I, I recall years ago when low molecular weight heparins came into common use, people said heparin just wouldn't get used anymore, and European centers stopped using heparin, and, of course, the frequency of HIT with low molecular weight heparin is about a tenth, maybe three or four per thousand rather than three to four per hundred with heparin. Um, why are we still using heparin anyway? Um, <laughs> Besides uh, heart surgery, Anand, do you have uh, comments? You know, as a as a lab medicine and transfusion med physician, I don't use heparin a lot, uh, uh, and I think of it in, in the context of testing. So I'll maybe defer to David on that question. Sure, David. Well, I, I put that question to my colleagues in the pharmacy department at our large tertiary care hospital, and and other divisions within the medical school uh, frequently. I, I think that, um, Bruce, it's hard for me, other than cardiac bypass, it's hard for me to think of a lot of reasons to use heparin. One might be if you're contemplating thrombolytic therapy for whatever reason, there's obviously more experience using it in conjunction with unfractionated heparin than with anything else. Um, another is the often... Uh, considered situation of, uh, or often discussed scenario of a patient who's at very high risk for bleeding where the short half-life and protamine reversibility of heparin may be highly desirable. Um, but I think a lot of it is also driven just by tradition, if you will. Uh, I know my colleagues in vascular surgery, not just at my current institution, but at previous ones, just seem most comfortable with with unfractionated heparin, you know, after sewing various blood vessels together um, or doing other manipulations to them. So, you know, I, I'm surprised that there's still as much heparin use as as there is, Bruce. But um, I'd be curious on your thoughts about about that as well. Uh, in in ICUs, it is used a lot. It's used in the patients who come back from getting stented. I mean, some hospitals use bivalorudin to keep the stents open, but there's a fair amount of evidence now that uh, that heparin works as well or maybe even better. Um, now, that's short-term use, but but it's still used, and some of those play- patients get thrombocytopenic. Then there, there are still a fair number of uh, cardiothoracic surgery 
uh, valve replacement patients and and uh, cabbage redos or failed stents that get cabbages and uh, that that group I think is the highest has the highest frequency of HIT and uh, then there are patients who are not sure what's going on in the ICU and someone wants to start heparin um, or they've come back from a vascular procedure and they're having suddenly some bad uh, effect and they're going to get heparin on the way to going down to interventional radiology to get angiography. So, uh, and, and then there are the um, renal failure patients who don't have a high frequency of HIT, but but they get heparinized, and most of the time it's not regional because that's sort of a drag to add protamine afterwards. So, so there's still a lot of heparin exposure in uh, in the United States, uh, and so I I think the need remains, um, and that's why I think this is so exciting, and it's been a very good lesson in uh, understanding me- mechanisms from uh, both of you. Uh, I'll ask you both for uh, concluding comments. Uh, Anand, anything final to say? And David, Anand first. Sure. Uh, There's one question that I have gotten asked actually multiple times now since uh, the paper has been published online. So I thought maybe I would address that. Uh, um, And the question essentially is, they asked me, how is it that in your patients uh, in your study with HIT, the SRA positivity rate was as low as it is? Is there a problem with the SRA that you folks run. And so we actually uh, noticed that if you look at our sensitivities published in the paper uh, for the SRA for, for disease, it's about 54%. And and based on, you know, reviews and such you look at in the literature, it's supposedly, you know, 90 or 95%. So we looked at the literature and we really couldn't uh, validate some of those, those, those high numbers. And we also very carefully looked at what other reference labs or large labs have published in the area. Um, there's a paper by uh, Dr. Lincoln et al. Uh, from, uh, from McMaster, which uh, they, they have a lab that runs, an excellent lab that runs the SRA. And among high 4T scored patients uh, in their study, uh, 37% were SRA positive. Uh, it compares very favorably to our, uh, our estimates uh, of SRA positivity in our um, you know, high 4T scored population. So um, one of the things that I've been telling them is I don't think the the lack of sensitivity of the SRA is a lab specific phenomenon. It's, it's it's likely that the SRA by itself is 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 less sensitive uh, for detection of hit antibodies uh, compared to the P, pathogenic hit antibodies compared to the PEA. Although this is you know this is not not a standardized test. There is no proficiency testing in place. So uh, the the best way to answer that question would be uh, through an intralab comparison uh, study, but uh, that's something that uh, has, has not been done to my knowledge. So I would uh, just conclude by saying that um, uh, I'm, I'm excited about this test, the PEA. Uh, I think preliminary results show that it's as, at least as good as the SRA for making a diagnosis a hit. Uh, but I do think there's a lot to learn, and uh, the prospective study that we have underway uh, should uh, should help with that. 
Uh, and so I'll just I'll say probably you know stay tuned for for updates. And uh, in the near future, um, the Blood Center Wisconsin should be able to release this as a clinical test uh, that uh, hospitals uh, uh, physicians can order. David. Well, I'd like to uh, thank you, Bruce, for such a great job of moderating and congratulate Anon for really spectacular science and an innovative approach to trying to make the testing for this tough uh, diagnosis better. I, I think it's going to be a, a test and a, and a field to keep an eye on in the future, and uh, I, I think we all hope that for our patients' sake, think you know um, we can improve upon the current state well thanks to you both of you for your very crisp uh, analyses and descriptions uh, and helping us uh, keep up with and keep track of the science um, this concludes the podcast uh, for the september 2016 chest <laughs>